I have just a couple images for today that I wanted to show you just to give you a sense of where we are in, these, in this particular passage, where we were last Sunday. If you look at the first verse of, uh, really from last, one of, the fir- one of the early verses from last week's text, look at Matthew 3, 13, and it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. So if you look at the screen, this is very simple. He's coming down from Galilee to the Jordan, probably somewhere in this area. It's hard to know the exact spot where the baptism of Jesus would have taken place. After the baptism occurs, he then heads out into the Judean wilderness, which is this area here, kind of with the brown outline. Uh, It's about 60 miles north to south. It's about 13 miles wide. And you can see um, what it looks like today. Uh, This is the kind of... So if you think desert, just flat sandy desert. That's not quite the right thing. It's very hilly, a wilderness area, and you can see that we don't know the exact place where this happened, but this is in the Judean wilderness. This is the kind of area where Jesus was for 40 days and 40 nights uh, entirely alone, and then Satan comes and begins to tempt him, and then eventually angels come to minister uh, to him as well. We'll take that image away. We'll go back to our passage here. And I want to say something I did not say about the baptism last week. So let's reread just part of this. Look at verse 16 and 17 of Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, there are at least three things that we see here about Jesus in this baptism moment. We see that He's the Son of God. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. He's the Son of God. Number two, we see that He's the Davidic Messiah. That's what Christ means, the Anointed One, the Davidic Christ, the Davidic Messiah. And we see that He is the suffering servant of the Lord from Isaiah. And I just want to back those up really briefly here. That He's God's Son is easy. That's obvious. The Father says, this is my Son. So clearly, we're seeing that He's the Son of God. But we're also seeing that He's the Davidic Messiah. Don't don't turn to all these verses right now. There's just too many to keep up with probably. But in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, it says of the Davidic King, God says, as for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of my decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is when a Davidic king becomes king, and Jesus is clearly fulfilling that role in the most, in the most extraordinary sense. In this moment, God is looking down and saying, you are my son, not just son of God as in second person of the Trinity, which is certainly true. He is also the Davidic king here. But interestingly, the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and God says, this is the one to, with whom I am well pleased. Again, don't turn to these, but just listen to these verses from Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 11. This is Isaiah 11, one through, well, the first few verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you remember Jesse? That's David's dad. So a, a, a shoot, for, so the Davidic kingdom has been cut down like a giant tree with the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, they've been cut down. And there's just a stump left. There's no reigning king, there's just a stump. And yet out of the stump of Jesse, that's the Davidic king, a sprout is going to come up. That's Jesus. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's this person going to look like? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Does that sound like the baptism of Jesus? The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, etc. Now listen to Isaiah 42, first few verses. Behold my servant. This is the one who will later be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but this is earlier, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, listen to the words, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Does that sound similar to the baptism of Jesus? The Father says, I delight in him, and I'm putting my spirit upon him. That's the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit is being poured out on him. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 and 53. How about Isaiah 61? I remember back in the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s in the colonies, Jonathan Edwards was one of the people helping to lead that up in the Massachusetts area. And Jonathan Edwards said that during the Great Awakening, People loved their Bibles, of course. People were reading their Bibles like crazy. But he said, you know what book became absolutely central to people? He called it basically the fourth gospel, I mean, excuse me, the fifth gospel, the gospel of Isaiah. That Isaiah itself became so centered on Christ, it was so saturated with Christ, that Isaiah was being read uh, very much so at the time. So Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, think messianic language, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So I hope you see there's rich Old Testament allusions going on as Jesus is baptized. And the reason I bring that up is, well, first of all, it's in the passage and I wanted to mention it. But second of all is this. The contrast between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 is breathtaking. So, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus is being baptized by John. There are crowds, no doubt, around. The Father speaks audibly from heaven. This only happens a few times in the New Testament. He speaks audibly from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The heavens, Mark says, are torn open. The the, the, The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. This is a glorious moment for Jesus. You know, we talk about having mountaintop experiences in a Christian life, you know, these wonderful moments of just a a great nearness to the Lord. Look at the very next moment, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that is the incredible, almost whiplash reaction here. You go from moment of glory Father speaking, Spirit falling, everyone there admiring Jesus, John praising Jesus. A moment later, Spirit, what is the first thing that happens? He's driven out all by himself into the Judean wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of tempting and testing uh, under, uh, with, with Satan present. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. I may quote him a few times today. Spurgeon said, no sooner anointed than assailed. Times of holy enjoyment verge on periods of temptation. Let me be ever on my watchtower, and particularly during seasons of great enjoyment, for then is Satan likely to assail me. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? That great high moments spiritually are sometimes followed by moments of great temptation? Listen to Paul. You know this, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, he speaks in the third person because he's trying to be humble, but he clearly is talking about himself. He says, I know a man in Christ a number of years ago who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He saw things, things that 
are too wonderful to say, things that are, cannot be uttered. He, saw, he was taken up to paradise. He saw heaven. He saw it open up before him. And Paul says, for such a man as this, I would boast. He's talking about himself in the third person. But then he says, listen to these words, to keep me from becoming conceited, proud, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Is that a mountaintop experience? He got to see heaven? Because of that greatness he experienced, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to torment me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Then he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this from me, but the Lord said, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses and in my insults, because when I am weak, that is when I am strong in Christ. But Paul knew a moment of incredible revelation. This is not something we have available to us today. But Paul, as an apostle, the Lord gave him the incredible privilege of going to the third heaven and seeing heaven and coming back and not allowing him to speak of what he saw. And Paul says he was instantly tempted to become arrogant about that. I mean, think about it. You, you make some discovery in the Bible, in your own personal Bible study. You discover some incredible truth in the Bible, and you get excited about it. It may even move you. You're stirred by it. You're excited about it. And then before long, there's a temptation when you discover someone else who doesn't know it yet to feel a sense of superiority over that person, right? Maybe I'm alone in this. <laughs> this, is, this is the struggle of the Christian life. The high moments, we got to be careful because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, careful when you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. For no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let any of you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will always provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. But, but know that when you're standing firm, that's the very moment where you could fall. It, it is so tempting in the Christian life for, for us where things have been going, you know, we, you know, going well is, you know, we, we, we have all kinds of flaws. But things are kind of going well in many ways in your life, and you start, you start to think, I can, I can take my foot off the spiritual gas pedal. I can just sort of coast a little bit right now. Maybe we're moving into a summer schedule for some of us, maybe some vacation coming up. You're thinking, you know, I don't know that I have to really, you know, things are going all right. I'm just going to sort of take my foot off the spiritual accelerator. I'm going to neglect a little bit of Bible reading. I'm going to neglect a little bit of prayer. I'm feeling good. Things are good. I'm, I'm excited about the summer. I'm, I, I'm, everything's fine. And several days go by. A week goes by. Two weeks goes by. Suddenly, you realize that your heart for the Lord is hardening. And suddenly, temptations are starting to look more attractive to you. And suddenly, what's happening? We need to be so weary that we, wary that we not think because things are going well in a moment that there is not temptation lurking around that next corner. Spurgeon says this, Lord Jesus, be thou with me in the hour of my testing, for you know how to succor, to aid, to assist the tempted. He's thinking of Hebrews 2.18, for because Jesus Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, the Lord does not despise the weary Christian. The Christian who says, Lord, I'm a sitting duck for sin if you don't help me. I need your intervention. I need your grace in my life. Uh, you, you, we look around and we see Satan's got all these hooks 
And he's got bait on the hooks of various kinds, and the bait on the hook deceptively looks attractive, and we want to bite in, and we don't realize what comes once you bite on that bait of sin. There's a hook underneath, and if we fully understood it was there, we would not have bit in the first place, but that's how Satan works. He deceives us and draws us in to temptation and to sin. Here's the good news. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, what other religion offers you a God who can sympathize with weakness? Allah cannot do that. It would be blasphemy to say Allah can sympathize with you in your weakness. He doesn't know weakness. Our God, the true God, knows what it is like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. One day, walking by Jacob's well around noon, he had to sit down and send his disciples into Sychar, I think was the name of the town, to get food because he was weary from his journey. How could the omnipotent God be weary? Because he took on human flesh. He experienced the fullness of weakness and temptation, never once succumbing to sin. There was an author a while back, a number of years ago, who pointed out people who give in to sin, which is, you know, We've all given in in different ways at different times. People who give in to whatever temptation, we think we really understand the sin because we've given in to it. We, we, we really get this. We, we've given in. We really understand temptation. And one author said, no, actually, the only person who could truly understand the full tug of a temptation is the one who never gives in. Because if you feel the tug of a temptation for an hour and you give in, you know one hour of that temptation. If you feel the tug for a year and give in, you know a year. But if you know 33 plus years of temptation and you never give in, you actually understand it better than anyone else. Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Now, I want to clarify here, there's been an issue in the last few years that's brought this to my attention. When it says He was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin, that does not mean, now, now hear me out here, Jesus did not have the flesh, the sinful fallen nature. He had a physical body. He did not have a, the sinful nature inherited from Adam that you and I have, okay? So the internal impulse to sin that we have from our indwelling flesh, Jesus did not share that aspect. In other words, he, he, he was sinless. He did not have that internal longing and passion for sin that we struggle with. But he did experience real temptation from Satan. He experienced it throughout his life, and he never gave in. And he is able now to provide, because he never failed, he's able to provide with us provide us with the strength we need. So the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we read the story of the temptation of Jesus, you know this. Now, since we know the ending and we we trust Jesus' character, we know where this is going to end up. He's going to defeat Satan. But know that if Jesus gives in to any of these temptations, your salvation is gone. Because we can't have a sinful man who dies for us. We have to have the sinless God-man who stands in our place. So every single temptation he fights off, our eternal salvation is on the line. But thankfully, Jesus is eternally and infinitely trustworthy, and he never fails. He never gives in. He never sins. So let's look here at the passage more carefully. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to just begin this first section. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
Now, I know I had an extended introduction, so the sermon will not go all day, but here is the outline for the sermon. It's simply the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and I have three points. There are three lessons from Jesus' three temptations. Number one, we must trust the Lord's timing. We must trust the Lord's timing. Number two, we must not test the Lord. We must not test the Lord. And number three, we must embrace the cross before the crown. We must embrace the cross before the crown. So, this, each temptation will be the points. So, the first temptation is our first point. We must trust the Lord's timing. So, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and He was hungry. Um, I think we see some allusions here. You, you see an allusion to uh, Moses. You remember Moses when he is on Mount Sinai? Uh, he does not eat any food for 40 days and, or drink any drink for 40 days and 40 nights as he lays prostrate before the Lord on Mount Sinai. Um, that is after the people had sinned, and Moses stays up there with the Lord. I believe in Moses' case, there had to be supernatural uh, a miracle to keep him alive without food or drink. There's a debate as to whether there's a supernatural miracle here with Jesus' 40 days without food. It doesn't say he did not drink anything. It says he didn't eat anything. In fact, Luke, in his version, says he ate nothing, makes it explicit, no food at all. It is possible for a human being to go 40 days without food without doing necessarily irreparable damage to your body. It's been done in numerous occasions. So, I'm not sure if this is a a miracle? Spurgeon thinks it's a miracle that God kept him sustained. Other pastors think it was not. I'm not sure. But either way, he is truly without food for 40 days, and he is in desperate need and weak at this point. So, here's the first temptation, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, we've got to trust God's providential timing. What, what is it? Okay, so, Jesus turning stones into bread. I don't know about you. This is probably not a temptation that you personally struggle with because you don't have the ability to turn stones into bread. This is not exactly something you might be thinking, how, do, you know, how does this relate to my, to my life? Well, let's think about what this temptation was. Nothing is inherently sinful with Jesus doing a miracle to multiply food. He does that clearly in the feeding of the 5,000 and other examples of that in the New Testament. So, what's wrong with turning these loaves into bread? And the answer is, Satan is asking Jesus in his humanity not to trust God's, the Father's, providential timing for when His needs are to be met. So, right now, Jesus is being tempted to take things into His own hands and His humanity and to go against the Father's plan and to cure His food hunger issue miraculously in this moment, not fully uh, entrusting Himself to the Father's care and the Father's provision. Spurgeon says it like this, the evil one would have the only begotten Son cease to depend on God and take matters into His own hands. Temptations to unbelieving self-help are common enough, but very dangerous. Temptations toward unbelieving self-help are common enough, but very dangerous. I didn't know the phrase self-help existed in Spurgeon's day, but <laughs> there it is. And I, I was trying to think of an example in the Bible of something like this, a human example of this kind of thing. And this popped into my head, and I, I went and looked it up and reread the, the brief story. You remember when David is being chased by Saul, and he's hiding in the caves? Do you remember this? 
And he's, he's got his men, and they're in the back of one of the many caves in the area. And Saul has to use the restroom, right? And so Saul just wanders alone into a cave, and the chances of him wandering into the cave David is, is one in, what, 10,000? It's not likely. Okay, so Saul makes his way into the cave to use the restroom. While he is in there, David sees him. He can recognize it's Saul from the back of the cave. His men say, the Lord has clearly led him here for this very moment. Kill him and the crown is yours. Do it, David. David's already, the Lord has already anointed you as king through Samuel. God's already promised you the throne. This guy's trying to unrighteously murder you. He's in the cave. He has no idea you're here. You just walk up behind him and kill him and it's yours. And David, what? Says, no way. David walks up behind him, cuts off the edge of his robe. Saul does not hear him. He gets up and leaves. When Saul leaves the cave, David comes out behind him and says, he calls him his father. He says, Saul, my, is that, is Saul my father? And Saul turns around. And David says, basically, let me quote this verse, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Now listen to what David says. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now do you see? That's the temptation to turn stones into bread. In other words, the temptation is you have something you want. In David's case, the throne. It's been promised to him by God. It's not illegitimate that he become king, just like Jesus is hungry and legitimately wants food. But the timing is not God's timing. And so David is being tempted to take what is rightfully his in the way and in the timing that is not his. And so he says, no, touch not the Lord's anointed. I'm going to wait until God brings Saul's life to an end, and God himself avenges me against him, and God gives me the crown, and God gives me the throne. I'm going to entrust this to God. I'm not going to take it into my own hands. Do you understand where I'm, where I'm going here? So similarly here, I think that when we are faced with these kinds of temptations to turn stones into bread, we have three options. Number one, we can sinfully, un, out of unbelief, try to manipulate our way to make it happen, right? So we, we can use sinful, manipulative, unbelieving ways to try to orchestrate what we want for our lives by using people, deceiving people, twisting the truth, manipulating, moving people around to try to get my way and my will done exactly as I want it. Even if I have to sin to do it, I'm going to do it. That's one way that we can react to these kinds of temptations. Number two, we can simply be, alternatively, we can simply be paralyzed by fear and anxiety and worry. Well, what if I don't get my way? I'm not going to try to make anything happen. I'm just going to sit here and I'm, I'm not going to trust God. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to be completely consumed by fear and anxiety. What if it doesn't work out the way I want? What if it isn't, etc.? We can be absolutely paralyzed by worry and anxiety. Or number three, we can do what Jesus did, which is we can joyfully, trustingly, we can joyfully entrust ourselves to God and His ways and His provision and His timing. We don't grasp for things outside of God's timing. We, we at times will need to wait patiently for the Lord. So how does Jesus respond to this first temptation? I, I just, I love this. You know, I, it hit me, I think, this morning. I was reading this. How many times have we heard this passage, right? And it just hit me this morning that other than the phrase, it is written, which Jesus uses to introduce the text of Scripture, he keeps quoting, it is written, again it is written, for it is written. Outside of that, Jesus only says one statement, which is, be gone, Satan, only one statement other than just quoting the Bible. 
So when Jesus is faced with temptation, he just quotes the Bible. Everything he says here is just basically Scripture uh, that he speaks. So Spurgeon says this, he's tempted, out flashes the sword of the Spirit. Jesus pulls the, the sword of the Spirit out. Our Lord will fight with no other weapon. He could have spoken new revelations, but he chose to say, it is written, it is written, it is written. There is a power in the Word of God which even the devil cannot deny. So Jesus God in the flesh, when he is tempted, what does he do? He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Scripture. Listen, did, did Jesus, was he carrying around some gigantic set of scrolls of the Old Testament? I don't think so. I don't think so. Those were expensive. They were rare. They were in the synagogues. I don't think he had his own copy of the Bible because that wasn't available. Jesus had his Bible in his mind. He had memorized these texts. And he, as soon as, as, soon as the serpent fires the fiery dart towards him, Jesus immediately pulls out the shield of faith. He pulls out the sword of the Spirit, and he goes to work, quoting God's Word back to Satan and really for his own self. I just have to say here, this is so interesting to me. So, you've heard, you know probably 2 Timothy 3, 16. Listen to this if you haven't heard this in a while. Paul says, all Scripture is, I'm going to give the Greek word because it's just so good, theonoustos, God, theos, noustos, breathed. All Scripture, all of it, is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, competent for every good work. So, Paul says all of it, 100% of Scripture is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. Did Paul make that up? I don't think so. Paul got the idea of saying Scripture is God-breathed. He got it from Jesus, I think. Look at what Jesus just said in Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is God-breathed, comes out of the mouth of God. Right, when we speak, the way we make sounds is air blows through our vocal cords and comes out and makes noise. Our words are breathed out. And so, Scripture is so intimately connected with God's speech that He literally breathes out the words of Scripture. And so, Jesus believed in what theologians call plenary verbal inspiration. Okay, plenary verbal inspiration. What, what does that even mean? Plenary means it's full and complete. It means all of it. 100%. We could argue about how we know this at another, at another place, but all 66 books of our Bible, the 39 of the Old Testament, the 27 books of our New Testament, these are all the verbally inspired words of God, complete, plenary. All of it is God's Word. It is verbally inspired. I don't mean verb as in like an action verb. I mean verbally as, in, uh, as opposed to like visually. Verbally means using words. So, plenary verbal inspiration means all of the words of Scripture are inspired by God. All of them. All of this is God's very Word. That's what Jesus believes. When He says, it is written, He says, these words come out of the mouth of God. And by the way, I know Jesus is the ultimate author of Scripture, right? In God's sovereignty, God is behind the author of Scripture. No word of prophecy ever came from a prophet's own interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 1. So, certainly, Jesus is behind all Scripture. But the human Jesus got this statement not from nowhere. He got it from His Old Testament. He got it from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 which means it came humanly from Moses, who got it directly from the Lord Himself. So, get this. When you read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what do we hear? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God. 
plenary verbal inspiration. Then Jesus requotes it and says, I agree with Moses. It's all God's words coming out of His mouth. And then a few years later, Paul shows up and says, hey, I, I third that. All Scripture is theonostos. It's breathed out of the mouth of God. This is across the board, Old Testament and New Testament, Moses, Jesus, and Paul. All across the Bible, we believe these are God's very words. That's why Jesus battles Satan with them. I, I just got to say, this is amazing to me. And two weeks from now, we may come back to this passage to talk about it more, but in all three quotations that Jesus quotes against temptation, all three of them, well, of course, they're from the Old Testament. The rest had not been written yet. But all three of them come from the same book. They actually all come from the same three-chapter section of the same book. All three quotations come from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Now, I just have to say, if Deuteronomy was good enough for Jesus, Deuteronomy is good enough for me. People might naysay Old Testament. Spurgeon said, you know, the old critical scholars attacked Deuteronomy over 150 years ago. And Spurgeon said, well, I think our Lord prepared us well for the attack on Deuteronomy by using it alone in His response against Satan. Jesus believed in the verbal inspiration of Deuteronomy. And if Deuteronomy and the Old Testament books are good enough for Jesus, we should not detach ourselves from them. We should instead believe them, and we should study them, and we should quote them because they are God's very Word. One pastor told a story of a younger man he knew who I believe was some kind of doctor, medical worker, young Christian, very successful. Everything he touched turned to gold. He was married, had the ideal family, ended up being, I think, a medical missionary in another country. Everything he did was just, everything he touched went well. And then all of a sudden, the man is found committing adultery, wrecks everything. His ministry, his family, his marriage, everything is, is just falling apart around this horrific adultery that this man had dug his heels in and been a part of for a period of time. And the pastor reflected back on the story and said, how could that have happened? He was utterly spiritually, he looked like he was just gold. How could this have happened? And a man who knew him very well reflected on this two years after it happened. And he said, he said, yes, I, I know he looked so wonderful in all these ways, but I don't think he had ever really had a moment in his life where what he wanted and what, 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 what he wanted for himself and what scripture wanted, what, what scripture commanded had come into competition with each other, where he was actually going to have to sacrifice real circumstantial gain in order to be faithful to God's word. He said he had never really been tested like that. He just, whatever he wanted is what he did. And it seemed all good, but suddenly when he wanted something he shouldn't have, he had no, he had no force to stop. And he went ahead and indulged in that sin. Well, here we are, here, here's the question for us. Have we ever come to a point in our life where what God's Word tells us to do is going to greatly inconvenience our life? Have you come to those moments? If I'm going to be true to God's Word, I could, what, whatever it may be, I may fill in the blank. Circumstantial challenges are going to go up if I do what God says over here. And when you face those moments, You've got to choose to be faithful to God's Word like Christ because Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, if you've got to choose between your physical needs and circumstantial pleasures, bread, physical bread, or obeying God's words, God's Word has to take priority in our lives. All right, let's move here to our next temptation, number, verse number 5. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan says, Two can play at this game. I will quote Scripture back to you. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, I plan to go into this more in two Sundays, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to treat this very briefly right now, but I have to just add this one point. So, Satan is quoting Psalm 91. The implications of this are astonishing. This means Satan knows his Bible. Satan knows how to quote the Bible in a way that will destroy your life. Satan knows how to use the Bible, in a, he knows how to use it and misuse it in such a way that he can actually tempt you by misinterpreting the Bible to you. That, that's what Satan is doing in this particular text. And the way you instantly know he's misquoting it, of course, it's Satan, so you know it's going to be bad, but the way you know contextually he's misquoting it is because, you know, Satan, why don't you quote the next verse? So he's quoting Psalm 91. Verses 11 and 12, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on your hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Quote verse 13. Quote the next verse, Satan. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Who's the serpent? It's the man talking to Jesus right now. He's the ancient serpent, the dragon, Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the accuser. And so what happens? Jesus, Jesus obviously knows the next verse. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm about to do some trampling right now, Satan. And on the cross, I'm going to actually crush your head. So, make sure you quote Scripture in context. I'll just say briefly, every single cult and false teaching in the world that uses the Bible can find a verse out of context or badly translated to support any kind of heresy or error you can imagine. A text without a context, you know the phrase maybe, becomes a pretext for a proof text. I still don't know what half of that means, but I think it means that you can use the Bible however you want to use it if you don't know the context and the meaning. We've got to interpret Scripture in its immediate context, in its larger canonical context, and we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, interpreting the less clear passages using the more clear passages. That's just the way we do it. So, we interpret Scripture in its immediate context, its larger context, and we interpret, the, we interpret the, the, the less clear with the clear, and we allow those to shed light on one another. When you do that, Satan's arguments fall apart. So, we must not test the Lord. One, uh, listen to this. One, one theologian said it like this. The devil's suggestion… So, jump off the temple, the angels will catch you. The devil's suggestion was of an artificially created crisis, right? There's no need to do this. Just, you know, why are you doing this? So, the devil's suggestion was of an artificially created crisis, not of trusting God in the situations which result, which result from obedient service. Do you follow that? Satan is trying to create an artificial crisis where God is forced to come in and save the day. That is testing the Lord. Whereas if we are just walking in obedience, the Lord will sovereignly care for us, but we should not abuse His care and His providence in the process. Okay, number three, we must embrace the cross before the crown. We must embrace the cross before the crown. Let me uh, finish with that last one, verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now this, see if this makes sense. The temptation here is Jesus I'm paraphrasing. Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, I know why you came. You're the son of man from Deuteronomy 7 who's going to inherit all the kingdoms of the world. That's what it says. Son of man, that's Jesus, came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and he received a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages would serve him and it would last forever, forever, and ever. So Satan knows Jesus is going to come and inherit the whole world. And so Satan says, hey, I'll give it to you right now for free. No cross, but you'll get the crown right now. You can avoid all your suffering. See, the Scripture calls Satan the little case G, lowercase g, God of this age. Satan is called, the, the, it says in 1 John 5, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Luke 4, Satan says, it's all been given to me and I give it to whomever I will. In Revelation 13, 2, Jesus, uh, Satan, not Jesus, Satan gave to the beast uh, all his power and his throne and his authority to, to, to do evil. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says at the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Satan's saying, listen, I've got it in my control, which is not totally true. Of course, there's such limitations on this, and it's temporary. But he says, I will give it to you, Jesus. No cross. I'll give it to you right now. And Jesus says, be gone. I'm only worshiping the Lord your God. I'm not about to bow down and worship you. Well, we see this in, for instance, Romans 8, provided we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with Him. We are called to suffer with Jesus and bear the cross now. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a, there's a time of suffering now, but then there's glory hereafter. And so, we suffer with Christ here in this world, and then we will one day be glorified with Him if we endure. Jesus said in John 12, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world, that's Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he would glorify God. Okay, so summarize this point here. It, it, it is better to suffer, getting this from another pastor, this sentence, it is better to suffer than to sin. It is better to suffer than to sin. When this pastor said this to his church, he actually said it like five times and got them to say it back to him. He said, I'm catechizing you. I want you this to be driven into your, into your mind. It is better to suffer than to sin. Jesus says, okay, here are my options. I can, at least Satan's obviously not trustworthy, but Satan is saying he will give him all the kingdoms of the world right now without the cross. So crown without the cross. That's the, that's the offer. It's, it's, it's full of lies, but that's the offer. The other offer is you get the crown on the other side of the cross. Those are the options. Suffering and then glory or sinful glorying now without the suffering. And Jesus says, this is not even close. I would way rather go through the cross to inherit the world than ever bow down to you, Satan, to receive the kingdom. And so Jesus says, it's better to suffer than to sin. Now, we'll wrap it up here. Look at verse 11 again. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is connected to the word for a deacon. I looked it up uh, to see. It normally refers, this word, um, 
ministering, normally in the New Testament, is used for meeting the physical needs of an individual. All over the place, it's used that way. Serving tables, ministering at tables. It's normally referring to physical needs. I think the angels fed Jesus, uh, just like Elijah, right? He gets fed from the angel when, he, when, he, when he's exhausted. And so, they, they, they care for Jesus. But listen, the angels come when? In God's proper timing, not when Satan tells them to do it, but when God has chosen the Father to, min- to send angels to minister to God the Son. Now, I'll wrap it up with, uh, with this thought here. There's, there's more to say. Again, we'll come back to this in a future week. But one thing is this. Jesus in this passage is meant to be contrasted with Adam in the garden of Eden. If you don't believe me, I'll, you don't have to turn there right now, but the last… Okay, so just hang with me for a minute here. This scene that we just read has an all, a very similar version of it is in Luke 4. Okay, very similar. And right before Luke 4 begins, the last thing that is said is it's the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, and it ends by saying this. It says, the son of Seth, so it's Jesus is the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. He's the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is called the son of God at the end of Luke chapter 3 because God created Adam. The very next verse is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan says, if you're the son of God, right? So there's a clear contrast between Adam and Jesus here. And I just want to read these comparisons, and then I'll pray for us. Comparing Adam's temptation to Jesus' temptation. Both were personally tempted by, Jesus, by Satan. Jesus and Adam were. Adam was tempted in the company of his wife. Jesus was tempted when he was all alone. Adam was tempted in a lush paradise. Jesus was tempted in a barren wilderness. Adam was tempted while he had all his needs richly supplied. Jesus was tempted when He was famished from a 40-day fast. Adam distrusted what God had said and sinned. Jesus said to every temptation, it is written. What does God's Word say? Adam, a mere man, sinfully desired to become like God. Jesus, God's own Son, humbly desired to become a man. Adam followed Satan's lies and plunged all the human race into sin. Jesus rejected Satan's lies and brought His people salvation. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus' obedience brought life. Adam gave in to temptation when he was strong. Jesus resisted temptation when he was weak. Adam blamed his wife for his own sin, saying, the woman you gave me, take her instead of me. On the cross, Jesus took the blame for his bride, saying, take me instead of her. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Your one and only Son, Your beloved only begotten Son that You sent Him into this world. We thank You that He was tempted and tried and yet never succumbed to the evil one. He always trusted You fully and followed Your Word in His humanity, never sinning at all. We thank You Lord Jesus, that you were willing to go to the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before you. We thank you that you did not decide to reject the cross and only try to reach for the crown, but that you endured the cross, and now you are crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray now as we sing that you would be honored in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.